Um, so the, t- the talk, this particular one, as we finish the day, is about how can I make the most of the rest of my life? And um, I guess that's the thing about life. We only get um, one go. Uh, we might wish for a second time, or we might w- like to rerun things, but we only really get one. D.H. Lawrence once said, if only one could have two lives, the first in which to make one's mistakes, and the second in which to profit by them. Um, but that's, that's it, really. We have no dress rehearsals, no matinee performances. Um, it's just uh, one life. And I think, moving on, so what we often find is that life can be quite confusing. So there's lots of, lots of options, uh, lots of decisions, and lots of things which, um, when we look back on our lives, uh, might have been good or bad or painful uh, things we regret, things we really uh, like when we look back on. Um, but no matter what happened or what has happened in the past, the great news is that with God's help, when we look to the future and we look to the life we have still that awaits us, we can look forward with confidence and, uh, and we can be really positive about what's going to happen. And that's a lot about what I'm going to talk about uh, today, is looking ahead, looking to the life that we have left live. How can we do that best? How can we serve God in the way we want? And how can we have life in all its fullness? So I'm going to first read um, from Romans. So Romans 12, uh, verse 1 and 2. And this says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, um, in, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I'm going to spend quite a bit of time just looking at these two verses. They're amazing verses. And and what I want to say is, talk a little bit about what we should do as we look to the lives we have. Then think about how we should go about that, so some practical things about how. And then finally, just a little bit about, well, why should we? Um, and what's our motivation for doing that? But to start first with the what. Um, so, so first we need to think that becoming Christians and living a life as Christian is, is really a break from the past in many ways. And um, because we're called to be different and we're called to stand out. And we're called to stand out from the crowd because when people see us, they want to see that actually there's something distinctive about us. Paul says in the passage, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Uh, or as J.B. Phillips translates this verse, don't let the world around you squeeze it into its mold. Because that's, that's the reality, I'm sure you realize, that, that bit by bit, the world around us gives us this amazing pressure, the pressure to fit in, to be what the world describes as normal uh, and to conform to that. And it's really hard to stand out, and it's really hard to be different in that. There was a young police officer taking his final exam at Hendon Police College in North London. Uh, what you'd get in these exams is you'd get this scenario that they would explain to you. And then the police officer needs to combine a bit of knowledge of the law and common sense and come up with a good answer as to what they would do in that scenario. So this is what he got told. This is the exam question. You're on patrol in outer London when an explosion occurs in a gas main just in a nearby street. You walk over and investigate and you find a large hole has been blown 
in the footpath, and there's an overturned van lying there. You walk over to the van, and inside there's a strong smell of alcohol. And there are two people, a man and a woman. The woman you recognize is the wife of your divisional inspector who's away in the States at the minute. Passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, but you realize this man, he's wanted for armed robbery. Then a man runs out of a house nearby because his wife has just gone into labor due to the explosion. And while this is happening, you hear another man just over there in the river crying for help because he's drowning because he can't swim. The question says, it's a great question. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words and actions what you would do. To which the officer thinks for a minute, picks up his pen and says, I would take off my uniform and I'd mingle with the crowd. <laughs> and, and I think first we can sympathize with that in that, you know, for Christians, it's very easy to, um, to at times uh, take off our uniform, so to speak, and mingle with the crowd. Because on Sunday or on Wednesdays or wherever that time is, um, it's, it's great and it's easy to say, you know, I'm a Christian. But actually in the pressures of life, it's very easy just to um, mingle in and merge the crowd. But we're called to be distinctive. And distinctive means that um, it, it's not, I suppose a little bit in this, sometimes you kind of think that being different uh, means being odd or, uh, or, or something different. So, so it doesn't mean that we're called to wear particularly weird clothes or speak in a very weird religious type language. Um, we are, we are uh, able to be normal and to be ourselves and, and to kind of engage with the culture we live in. But on the things that really matter, we need to be distinctive and different. And that's when it's matters of what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. And matters of integrity and love and compassion and all those different things we absolutely... People want to look at us and say, do you know what, there's something distinctive about that person. Um, and also I'd say, so that's one thing, you know, different doesn't mean you know, just going out of your way to be odd. Um, but also it doesn't mean that becoming a Christian, you get rid of your personality. So when you, do you know, as, uh, if you're particularly chatty and outward going, uh, or if you tell bad jokes, or if you love computer games, but when you become a Christian, you'll still, unfortunately, tell bad jokes, love computer games, and potentially be chatty. That doesn't change. God doesn't reinvent our whole personalities. But what he does do is he takes it and works with us. And, and as we grow and as we love him more, um, we change to be more like um, what Jesus was. And it's a shift, you see, between, you know, pre, and, and we all fall down in this. Maybe we, we're backbiters and we, we talk about people behind their back. But then we move to be encouragers, real encouragers, and, and always looking to say a good word. Or maybe we grumble all the time and, and nothing's good enough for us. And there's always a, a, you know, there's always a cloud behind every silver lining. Um, but then we move to being thank, thankers. We're thankful for the daily breath and the bread we have. Or maybe we worry all the time and we move to being uh, peaceful because we've got that sense that God is in control. And lastly, maybe we have uh, sexual immorality is a big challenge and we move to having the control that God gives us to be able to deal with all that. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we flip across and everything's perfect. This is a, you know, it's a constant journey between the two. But that's the pattern that we want to be moving. So then when people look at us, they say, do you know what? That person is distinctive. And why are they distinctive? Because they have that peace. They are thankful. They always encourage. They're always looking out for people. And those are the great things we want to be known for. 
But if I just want to pause, and it's not an easy topic, which is why my children are out there, thankfully, and we're all in here, but to, to talk about the sexual immorality and what that means, because it's really, it's really relevant today in our culture, because the questions of, you know, what about sex outside marriage? What about um, marriage at all? What about, um, uh, do you know, man and woman? Is it just a man and a woman? And all those different things, they're very relevant, and, and, and I think... Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about that because it's probably worth um, remembering that, that God invented marriage, but he also invented sex as well. And he doesn't look down in astonishment and say, um, you know, when he sees a man and a woman in marriage, he says, oh no, whatever will they think of next? How did that happen? And because C.S. Lewis pointed out that, that, that um, pleasure is God's idea, um, not the devil's. And, and in many ways, he sometimes think that the devil has stolen that from us, because we forget that God created enjoyment and pleasure and all those things, and that applies to sex as much as it applies to ordinary life. And the Bible, um, surprisingly, I think, um, it's not often, I'm waiting for Paz to do a sermon on it, which would be great, but um, it doesn't often, you hear that much about Song of Solomon, um, and uh, Song of Songs, something it's called. So it's just middle of the Bible turn right, and actually the book celebrates uh, love, and it celebrates the intimacy and, uh, and everything that goes with that, the contentment and satisfaction. So having invented sex, as God did, and God thinks it's good, God then said about what's the context and what's the best way to enjoy that good gift from God. And Genesis in 2.24 talks about it, and then Jesus refers back to it in Mark. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that's a marriage. Marriage is that public act of leaving parents and making a lifelong commitment together. Right, so that was quite heavy stuff, and I'll, I'll come back to it. You'll be really excited to know. But a slight digression before we get there. So I love um, uh, quizzes, um, and I love kind of pub quizzes. I know Anne does as well. And, um, and, and the great thing about quizzes is you get lots of these kind of trivia questions um, that get you thinking. So I've got one for you today to speak to the person bes- beside you or to think about yourself. Okay, and that's, in the English language, you sometimes get a word, okay? And that word means the opposite thing in, in two different circumstances. So you take the word, you put it in one sentence, it means one thing. You stick it in another sentence, it means completely different, the complete opposite, okay? And there are, I reckon, there's probably loads. I've got three of them here. And so I want to see if you can think of any word that means complete opposite in two different sentences, okay? So you don't want to talk to your neighbour, and you're very welcome to say to your neighbour, what is he going on about? But, uh, but if not, see if you can think of one. Right. Okay, I'll, um, I'll put you out of some of your misery, but you may have, you may have thought of some. And um, the ones I came up with, okay, so the first one is fast, all right? So, he ran through the storm very fast, okay? He held fast in the storm, all right, so fast means quick. He ran through the storm very fast and absolutely unmovable. He held fast under the storm. Okay, that's one. So the second one is um, clip. All right, so he clipped this microphone to his shirt and she used scissors to clip his hair. So clip means to attach it and it means to take it apart, obviously to cut and to remove. Um, and I know what you're asking is, what are these called in English language? And they're called contronyms. Wow, all right. Um, I'm, okay, I'm probably getting too excited about that. But the last one, and this is the really uh, slightly random link, is the word called cleave. Because cleave, well done, Emma, English teacher. So cleave means to, um, 
split, exactly, but it also means to bring together and sit together. And cleaves the word I think about when I think about this passage. Because actually, um, marriage is a picture of that, where you, you cleave from your parents, and then you cleave together in a marriage as a man and wife. And that's, that cleaving together, that one flesh, isn't just physical, but, but I guess crucially, it's emotionally and psychologically as well. And you see that in the wedding. If you, I mean, I've been to some lovely weddings, and, and there's a great picture at the front where the proud father of the bride walks up the aisle, comes to the front, and the vicar says, who gives this woman to be married? And what will happen is then the father says, I do. But the father doesn't stay there, which most of them would like to, but they step backwards. And that's the idea of they bring their daughter in this case, and the cleaving is the father stepping back, and then the wife or the wife-to-be joining with the husband in marriage. And it's that, that, that kind of uh, splitting and then joining together. And um, the, I guess what God says is that the context of that joining together is within marriage and within a, like a lifelong relationship. Because the problem is there's no such thing really as casual sex. Because casual sex, um, the one flesh still happens. And it's a bit like when you stick the two bits of cardboard together. And when you try and pull the cardboard apart, um, it, it rips and wrenches. And you actually leave bits of it on both bits of cardboard. And that's what happens because when, when uh, people become one flesh, that union has happened. And so therefore, the pulling apart of it then afterwards leaves scars and hurt and pain and everything that goes with it. And so that's why God describes, God who invented sex has this great context of a lifelong commitment for people to be joined together in one flesh. And that's the plan. That's the great blueprint for how to enjoy it best. And it's good to remind ourselves of it, but it's also good to remember that we all do mess up. And this is no different to any other sin, that we all uh, we struggle with sin and, and doing things wrong. And God completely is big enough to love us completely and to forgive us completely. And, it, and it's never too late. And God's love can heal any scars and any wholeness, especially as I talk about looking at the rest of your life, the key thing is that we can look forward uh, positive in the knowledge that we can walk with God in that. Okay, so that's the, let's not let the world squeeze us into the mold. Let us break from the past. And then the second part of what we need to do is we need to make a new start. And, um, and Paul says, he goes on to say in Romans 12 too, he says that we're to be transformed. And it's a bit like the, um, so I'm not very good at um, biology, but I'm told there's something called a chrysalis, and a chrysalis, and a pupa, pupa, whatever, thank you, I knew there'd be people here who'd know, that when a chrysalis, whatever that is, which I don't quite know, it becomes a butterfly, hooray, and I think for us then, what we want to be, we want to be transformed, we want to be taken from the people we were with our bad jokes and old personalities, and we want to be transformed to what God wants us to be, and that's like making a new start, and it's leaving behind the rubbish and it's starting afresh and starting anew. And in the verses that follow in Romans, um, in 9 to 21, we get a glimpse of that new start and what it should be doing. And this is quite a long passage, but I'm going I'm to read through it all if you bear with me. Um, because there's some great stuff. And if you just think about, if today is about making a new start, and we think about what God is talking about here, then if we think about how we would apply that um, to our lives. So verse 9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's great words, and it's really challenging, and certainly for me, reading this and writing it and speaking to you, um, you read through and you think, right, so I've still got a bit of work to do in many areas. And, but just starting at the beginning, it says, love must be sincere, and sincere is a really interesting thing. So it's page 1139. Perfect, thank you, Pads. Um, and actually, as I go through, if you have, if you do have Bibles, it's 1139. Um, and the first bit, actually, um, in verse 9, it says, love must be sincere. I'll give you a couple of seconds to, um, to find. That's 1139 on the right-hand column, about halfway down. And sincere is an interesting word here because it actually means without play-acting and uh, without a mask and that, that sentiment that comes with it. And, and I think it's really relevant today in the life that we live because because I think that we spend a lot of our lives um, wearing different masks. And so, you know, the great examples are when, when people say, you know, how are you? Uh, or how are things going? And, and depending on who you speak to, you, you, you have a range of masks from, yeah, everything's fantastic, great, brilliant, no problem at all, to actually, on some occasions, we let our mask down and we tell the truth and we're, we're really sincere. Or maybe you go out after work um, with your friends in the pub and you're chatting and you're talking and you're laughing at a whole range of jokes from those you should and those you shouldn't or you're gossiping. And actually, you're kind of not showing the real you because you're putting up a mask in order to fit in. And I think the, the, the problem with that is that when we're wearing a mask and we uh, have you know, relationships with people and we chat to them, the, the real people never meet. And actually, uh, you never know who you're speaking to. And sincere love, the love we aspire to, is that love which takes down the masks and reveals the real you, that allows you to be, um, to be yourself. And I don't say that glibly, right, because it's difficult to be yourself completely. And the only reason we can do that is that we're safe in the knowledge that God loves us and that we're precious in his eyes, because then we can afford to take risks and to let our masks down. And that the, means that um, we can have more depth in our relationships. And that's really important as we go the journey as Christians because we need that and we need that support. The other thing these verses talk about is this idea of joy, excitement, enthusiasm. So verse 11 says, but keep your spiritual fervor. It means that, that initial experience of becoming a Christian, that excitement and that joy, it's to try and um, keep that going. So there's a great line um, in, the, in the notes around the talk, and, uh, and I, I kind of read it, and I read it again and thought, do you know what, I can't say that, I'm not sure I believe that. Um, and it says that 
the longer we have been Christians, the more enthusiastic we should be. Do you know? And I thought, oh, oh no. Do you know? So, so actually, you know, you get that first love excitement as a Christian. And then, you know, we should get more and more and more and more and more enthusiastic as life goes. And I mean, it makes sense in terms of as we know and love Jesus and we get to know him, we understand what he's done for us, that we should do that. But I think we get so, it's like that world pressures to us to conform that we kind of forget our first love and we forget the enthusiasm about the fact that God sent his son to die for us and we can have a relationship with the God who created this amazing world. Uh, and so that's you know, a challenge as well. And then Paul talks about towards the end this idea of living in harmony with one another and being generous, verse 13, hospitable, verse 14, forgiving, empathetic in verse 15, and, and just generally this idea of living at peace and at harmony with each other. And that's the, that's the, the image that we as we're Christians want to build as a community, uh, building a church that has that no masks, real honesty, real enthusiasm, and harmony with one another because we see a, a, the atmosphere of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness uh, and self-control. So that's the new start and about what we want to uh, look for and what we want to do. And that, that's the kind of the, the what. Uh, we want to break from the past. We want to make a new start. Okay, so then moving on to the, well, how do we go about doing that? Because that is quite challenging and um, you know, it's a great aspiration, but how do we go about doing that? So, so Paul says, going back to the start of Romans 12 again, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So I want to think about what that means about offering our bodies. Um, and that's what God asks. So that's the how as to how we do it. And what I want to do is run through some of the different aspects of what it means to bring ourselves and bring our full selves to God. And so the first one, let's look at it, is, is time. Um, it's the most valuable thing and, and the most scarce thing, you might say, that you have um, as you go through your week. Um, but we need to give God all of it. And when I say all of it, I don't mean we must spend our days completely uh, fasting and praying and reading the Bible. Um, but it's that we give God it all and, and then with his grace we take back the bits that we want. And it's that idea that, that God is our number one priority when we look at our time. Uh, and he is the, you know, we check in with him and we make sure that he's part of that. Because it's really easy to get our priorities wrong. There's a great advertisement appeared in a newspaper. It said, farmer seeks lady with tractor and view to companionship and possible marriage. Please send picture of tractor. And um, <coughs> I think, I guess depending on where you come from, um, I, I think the farmer had his priorities probably not quite right. And because our priority should be in our relationships with people. And our number one priority is our relationship with God. And we need to try and set aside time to be alone with him. And, and this is a real challenge. And, I, and certainly for me, uh, in writing this, I'm not saying this is easy at all. It speaks to me very much. About, about trying to look at your diary and say, um, well, well, do I make time? Because if I don't make time, these things don't happen. Uh, I heard it once said that... Um, if you want to really understand what makes people tick, you need to look at their bank statement and their diary. Because in those two things, it says what their priorities are. So what they spend, because you know, um, I know certainly in my job I use data an awful lot, and we say often that you are what you spend. Your intentions and how you spend and where you spend describes more about you than you'd care to realize. 
And secondly, your diary, where you spend your time. And if we can get those things right, um, then that says lots about who we are and what we consider important. But the second one is our ambitions. And that's saying to God, Lord, I trust you with my ambitions and I'm ready to hand them over to you. And he says what he wants is his kingdom and his priorities to be number one. Um, And that doesn't mean that we can't have ambition. And it doesn't mean that God wants us all to give up our secular jobs or whatever that might be and go into full-time paid Christian work. It means that we include God in that and we have his priority as number one. And and that's just about making sure that our motivations um, are in line with his plan. So so we need to be careful about our ambitions. Thirdly then, um, we need to look at our possessions and our money and offer them to him as well. So in the New Testament, it doesn't say anywhere. There's no ban on uh, holding property. There's no ban on making money. There's no ban even in spending it and enjoying life. Um, you know, th- those are all, all permissible. But what's forbidden is this selfish um, accumulation just for ourselves, this obsession with kind of material things and acquisition all the time, and, and this, this love that we have often about material things um, that we cling to that more than anything else. And I think what that often highlights, and, and I say it myself when I think about um, building a future for my children, um, it, it's a really difficult thing because what you want to say, you have these discussions internally about, well, I need to save to be wise and to be prudent and to make sure that the future is secure. And there's absolutely a bit of common sense, right? We're not called to be stupid and God's given us brains. But at the same time, we would get very careful that we're not trusting our future to our money and what we earn, rather than trusting our future to the God that gives us everything. Um, and I love that line in Anglican. I'm not, you know, I'm, I was a Presbyterian originally or whatever, but um, I, I love that line in Anglican liturgy, which I'm going to forget, um, which is why I'm in the pads now. But when you bring the offering up to the front, um, it says... Um, Thank you. So, so it basically says um, uh, to God, uh, this is what we have. We are just thanking you for what you've already given us. Do you know? I can't remember. But the sentiment, okay, I'll move on to that, is that, um, is that what it's saying is that God has given us everything. And when we give back to him, we're just really giving back stuff that he's loaned to us. And it's that kind of starting point which says that everything we have comes from God. And when we give it back to him, we're just returning what already is his anyway. Um, and that's the kind of, the, it, it's that flip, rather than saying, I have earned this myself because I'm really clever, is saying God has blessed me with these things and I may choose to give some back to him or may choose to use it um, for myself um, in certain circumstances. And that's the kind of balance. Okay, so the next one is, I'm going to rattle through four quickly. Um, our ears, so that's just saying, um, what do we listen to? What do we accept? What do we not, you know, when someone's uh, gossiping or telling us a tale that isn't doing anybody any benefit, do we sit by and listen or do we walk away and say that's, that's not what we want to hear? And that's the kind of the negative. And the positive is do we positively listen to things, be it um, sermons or tapes and stuff which are good for us? And um, secondly, then our eyes and what do we look at? Um, so we can look at lots of things um, from a jealousy and a lust and envy and all those different things or we can choose not to. And, and I guess really interesting thing is when we look at people and people's actions, and there's a challenge for me hugely, is that do we jump to the best possible motivation or do we jump to the motivation that we think um, may be uh, 
based on our hang-ups. So, so let me explain that again. So when someone does something, uh, do, you, do you try and think about, well, what is the best motivation for why they did that? Um, do you know, is, it, it, is there a whole range of good things rather than saying, there they go again, they did that just exactly to wind me up. And it's that kind of when we look at things, it's trying to look through a lens of um, being positive and looking for the best in people. We need to give them our mouths as well. Uh, James talks lots about this in his book, about the mu- and the tongue in particular being the most destructive of all things. And we need to um, take care in how we use, you know, so if we don't have a good thing to say about someone, just say nothing at all um, and, and let it pass. Furthermore, our hands and how we do that, and do we actually give our hands to God in his service. And then lastly, our sexuality, which we've talked about a little bit before, um, and about how we offer that to God um, in the right way. And we can't pick and choose because Paul says, present your bodies. He doesn't say just a bit of it and you can leave that behind. Or he doesn't say, well, you can do it on a Sunday, but not every. He says, just bring everything you have. And, um, and I think the incredible paradox is that um, as we give everything up to God, we then discover what freedom is. And we discover the way to live and the way to live as God wants. And if we hold back stuff and we say, actually, you can't have everything, well, then we limit the freedom and we limit the joy which God has to offer. And the best thing is to bring it all uh, and to give it to him. Okay, um, so the second part of the how then. So there's all this bits about how we present our bodies. The second bit is, um, is probably the hard bit, but it's, we need to be mindful Uh, Verse 1 goes on to say, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, And this speaks to the fact that um, whilst we live in this world, life is not going to be perfect and easy. We have a world to come as Christians, and I trust in God that heaven will be perfect, and there will be no tears and no envy, and that, that is an amazing future. But whilst we live in this world, it will be tough, and it will be uh, hard. And and we need to be prepared uh, that going God's way will have that cost, that living sacrifice, and be willing to accept that. And in many parts of the world, I think being a Christian involves a real, tangible, physical persecution, uh, and it's a, it's, a, um, it's a very real threat for them. And for us here, I guess, realistically, the worst we have is a verbal or an ostracization or some mockery or some criticism. Um, but, but actually... Compared to what many people are around the world, life, we're really privileged in this country. And I, I sometimes think that the, the strange paradox, again, is that in countries where persecution is really acute and really um, uh, severe, often Christians have that, like I was talking about earlier, that enthusiasm, that dynamism, that closeness to, with God, because they live with him and trust him every single day. And our dangers clearly aren't physical, but the danger of apathy and the danger of actually, because we don't have that decision we have to make every day that may affect our lives, we just bumble along a bit. And so it's a privilege, absolutely, don't get me wrong, but we need to, to realise that actually um, we do need to times take risks um, as Christians. So that's the two things. We need to present our bodies as a high, and we need to do it as living sacrifices um, with that. So, so just to finish, the last few points I'm going to make is why should we do this at all? And so the why is about two things. <clears throat> Firstly, that God has planned our future. He knows our lives. He knows what's going to happen. And he wants the very best for us. 
Um, and at the end of Romans 12, verse 2, it says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I sometimes think the best thing that the devil does is uh, convince us. I mean, lots of what he does is convince us that God isn't who he says he is. But, but in one of the main ways, he said that God is out as a killjoy, as a spoilsport, and he's, you know, he's pretty much there to ruin the good things in life. And, and often we believe these lies, and we think that if we trust God with the future, that actually he's going to make it a bumpy road, and um, he's going to be a spoilsport effectively. Um, I, as many of you know, I have a seven-year-old son, Rory, and it's a bit like he comes to me on a Saturday morning and he says, I say, okay, um, or sorry, he says, Saturday morning, wakes up and says, right, Daddy, today we've got a day ahead of us. Um, I'll do whatever you want. Let's have a great day. And it's like me saying, oh, fantastic, perfect, just what I wanted for it. Right, so do you want to come with me, Rory? I'll put you in the cupboard, I'll lock the door, and that'll be you for the day. And, it, you know, it's absurd, okay? And it's an absurd example. But in the same way, you know, I'm a, you know, a poor kind of, um, I feel a lot as a father. I'm not perfect in any way. But God is the perfect father. And there's no way that us as his children, he would want anything but the best for us. And sometimes we don't see that it's the best in the moment. It, it takes time for it to play out. But we've got to trust that God wants the best for us. That he wants the good, the very best as any good parent. He, he wants it to be pleasing in the long run. And it will be perfect. That good, pleasing and perfect will. And, and sadly, I guess for us, we kind of think, okay, well this is God's plan for my life. But actually, you know, I could tweak it a little bit. I can make it a little bit better. And we try and control it and manage it ourselves and make it work. And it, and it ends up often being a bit of a mess. I was in Northern Ireland in half term. And Northern Ireland has um, this incredible bridge called Carrickreed Rope Bridge, which if you go to Northern Ireland, you'll probably go. It's just beside the Giant's Causeway. And obviously I kept <coughs> telling Bridget a lot that when I was a lad, the Carrickreed Rope Bridge was just really three ropes. I'm not sure it really was, but it was between these two massive, uh, massive cliffs and the sea crashes below. And it's like, you know, any time you walk over um, a wobbly bridge or stepping stones or whatever, that the worst possible thing you can do is look down um, and look around you because then suddenly you waver and you worry. And that's the picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is that of like that bridge crosser who looks directly in the future and fixes his eyes on Jesus who has a plan. And when you do that and when you just walk straight, you can go across um, most bridges without fear because it's looking round and looking behind and looking down that causes the wobbles. And that's the picture for us. So, you know, we, we have this Heavenly Father who loves us and he has a great plan for us. And we just need to not be distracted and to trust him and look to him as we walk along life as it comes to us. The second great motivation um, is what God has done for us. So he will ask us, there will be a cost, little sacrifices along the way, um, but that's nothing compared to the sacrifice that God has made for all of us. Um, C.T. Studd, who was uh, an, an excellent uh, cricketer in the 19th century, he was the captain of England, and he gave up um, all his wealth, all his comfort, all his cricket, um, which to me wouldn't have been a big deal, but um, he was very good at it, uh, to serve God in China. And he said, um, when he did this, he said, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, nothing is too hard for me to do for him. Because C.T. Studd was looking to Jesus and, and he said that in light of that, 
There's nothing I can do that would be too much um, for that. Um, and that's a big, it's a, you know, it's an easy thing to say, but it's a real challenge to make it affect us on a day-to-day because we, and I do it as well, we forget about the incredible sacrifice that God uh, made for us. When I think about my children, for those who have children, and think about how much love it would take to um, offer them up um, for another person. Uh, and that's how much God loves us. And so in light of that, what, what more motivation do we have but to uh, follow him, and even if it takes those small sacrifices. The writer of the Hebrews, and I think we did this uh, here, or I think it was two Sunday nights ago, he says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. As we look to Jesus and we see him, it's, it's absurd in some ways not to trust him with our future um, and, and to see that example that we want to fall. And we can see God's, the Father's love, the perfect model that Jesus showed for us when he came uh, to the earth and through the power that I'm sure we uh, learned about this morning, the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and to help us means we can do that journey and we can walk with him. And so just to summarize, I have one last slide, um, which is just saying, how do I make the most of the rest of my life? Um, as you look to the life that's ahead of you, there's, there's never um, a bad time to make a new commitment and to start with God. To say, well, what do I need to do? I need to forget about the past and I need to leave it behind me. And um, for many of us, there's lots of pain and challenge in the past, that that's a hard thing to do. But we need to leave that and commit it to God. We need to not follow the crowds. We need to be distinctive for the right reasons, and for the reasons that people will look at and see Jesus through us. We need to make a new start and look to the future. How are we going to do that? Well, we need to present our whole bodies and everything that goes with that. So our time, our money, our ambitions, our hands, our feet, everything about us, We need to give it over to God. uh, And we need to do that as living sacrifices. And actually, it's that thing that as you give up everything, you become free and you become what God intended us to be. And then why should we do that? Well, there are two big reasons. Firstly, that God is a God who loves us, who has a good, pleasing and perfect plan for us. So we can trust him with that. And secondly, he's a God who loved us such that he died for us. And so as he died for us, what more can we do in response um, to that, so that's that great motivation. Just to finish, I am um, when I was young, and I thought I was very cool, but I clearly wasn't. Um, we had a, uh, I had this no fear T-shirt that I wore as a teenager, and I said this great quote in the back. It was a completely secular T-shirt, but it was quite a nice quote, and it said that um, everybody who lives dies, but not everybody who dies has lived. And as Christians, and and even today, as we look at the rest of our lives, we have a choice as to what we want to do with it. And we can live that life in all its fullness, in all the freedom of the person, the God who created you intended. And we can look back and say, we have lived our life, and we have lived our life for God. Or we can choose not to and ignore it completely. And that's the great challenge for me, absolutely, reading this, and for us all together as well.